The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. For those of you who haven't been with us, we are going through the book of Acts, so we'll resume where we left off about two weeks ago. We started in Acts chapter 1. We're going to go, Lord willing, all the way through this book, the way it was written by Luke, all the way to Acts chapter 28. It's a history of how God started his church, the early apostles, how they laid the foundation, um, how the Spirit of God moved in the lives of his people. And God has left this account preserved perfectly for us, complete and inerrant and inspired by God for us, the church today and the church actually through the ages of the last 2,000 years so that we might know how to do church, do be with God's people in a way that pleases him. So the book of Acts really informs our philosophy of everything about being a Christian from living the Christian life on a personal basis, but also how we do church corporately with God's people. Philosophy of ministry and totally relevant. This is There is no other guide. It's God's standard. And it's filled with stories that are true and amazing. We've been blessed so far where we started in Acts chapter 1 and we saw that the Lord Jesus appeared to his apostles and some of the other disciples just before his ascension, 40 days after his crucifixion. He promised that he'd send the Holy Spirit not long after he left. So he ascended, got caught up into heaven, and his faithful 120 disciples went and prayed and continued to pray together daily, waiting for that promise. And about 10 days later on the day of Pentecost, God answered that prayer responded to the, uh, fulfilled the promise of Jesus, but also Old Testament prophecy like the book of Joel that promised to give the Spirit of God in an unprecedented manner to his people. And on the day of Pentecost, about 50 days after Christ's death and resurrection, God poured out his Spirit in a way he had never done in history. And from that day forward, the Spirit of God would come upon any believer in Jesus Christ and take up residence in them. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Amazing signs were done. That's when the church began. That was the foundation of the church, the church of Jesus Christ, all believers in Christ, one new man. And the apostles, uh, and that provided opportunity for Peter to preach an amazing and powerful sermon to Jews who were in Jerusalem at the time for the Feast of Pentecost. It was a, a powerful sermon. It was a penetrating sermon. It was convicting. He pointed his finger at the audience, mostly filled with Jewish men in the heart of Jerusalem, and said, you need to repent. You have you're responsible for the death of the Messiah. And it said they were pierced to the heart and they said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and believe and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And over about 3,000 did respond that first day. They all got baptized. They joined the church. All these Jews are now still going to the, the temple daily. They're not stopping going to the temple. The temple was established by God, the true God in the Old Testament. So they're still going, as are the, the apostles. Peter and John are going for daily prayer. The afternoon prayer time was at 3 o'clock. And um, so that takes us to Acts chapter 3 where Peter and John were going to daily prayer as they had custom been doing. It's now probably just weeks maybe after the day of Pentecost. They have over 3,000 disciples, probably more than that because they have been sharing the gospel and other people getting saved. So now you've got thousands of Christians, Jewish Christians, uh, infiltrating the temple grounds every day which is a problem for the Sadducees and the Pharisees who oversee the temple and Jewish worship. And John and 
Peter go to the temple, prayer time. Uh, they see a man who was born lame. He couldn't walk. He was over 40 years of age. He was begging for money. Peter said, we don't have any money, but in the name of Christ, arise, walk. And he did. He arose immediately. He, it said he was even jumping up and down, praising God for the instantaneous miracle. And he was clinging literally to James and John. He was so thankful and happy. And Peter and John, they continue and they go into the temple. They say their prayers. No doubt see some people they know. They leave and this healed man is hooting and hollering the whole time throughout the temple precincts. Then they go out the beautiful gate and they go over to Solomon's porch, which is adjacent and actually a part of the temple grounds. It's public. Everybody can see them. And it says uh, a huge, massive crowd of people followed them over there. We're wondering what in the world was that all about? Who are these guys that just did that miracle? And then Peter used that to preach a sermon, did the same thing. These are Jewish people, unbelievers. And he preached another gospel message to those people. It was a massive crowd, massive. Because it said when Peter was done preaching on Solomon's porch, and again, he pointed his finger at the end and said, you Jews killed your Messiah and called for repentance they made a public spectacle in the temple area so much because you've got potentially 3,000 who are already Christians and then thousands more who follow Peter and John over there. Who knows how big that crowd was of thousands and thousands of people in the temple precincts and porch. So the Sadducees take notice and the Pharisees are like, what is this disturbance? Who are these people? They need to stop. They don't have our permission. So the Sanhedrin goes over there just as Peter's finishing his gospel message and they arrest Peter and John on the spot, and they put him in jail for 24 hours. And right after that, it says that over 5,000 men on that day believed in the gospel. So now men as opposed to women. So now you've got 5,000 men, maybe thousands of women as well. And who knows? So 10,000 plus 3,000. So you've got over 13,000 Christians right there in the heart of Jerusalem who were practitioners of temple worship. And so now the temple is going to be absolutely inundated with believing Christians every single day in and out of the temple, which is going to irritate the Jewish leadership to no end because they thought, oh, yeah, this agitator, this Jesus, this blasphemer, we, we got rid of him, we killed him, and they thought just cutting off the head would kill the snake. Well, it didn't. And so that's where we are now. So Peter and John have been in prison for 24 hours. They go to trial. They're before 71 of the judges who are called the Sanhedrin, made up of Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and priests, including the high priest and the former high priest. And they said, "What? in what name did you do this miracle? And Peter said, oh, great question. I will tell you the name. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. He is the Messiah who's predicted in the Old Testament. He is your Messiah. He's the Messiah of the Jewish people. His name is the only name by which you get to heaven, Acts chapter 4, verse 12 said. He's the only way you can know Yahweh, the God you proclaim to believe in. That's the name I did this miracle in, in fulfillment of your Old Testament scriptures. This is the Jesus that you knew, that you saw, that did miracles in front of your eyes, that you condemned, that you crucified, that you killed in accordance with Yahweh God's plan. And he pointed his finger in their face for the third time to the most influential Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, giving them the gospel. 
Well, they were angry. They were infuriated. Dismissed them. Didn't know what to do. Um, and they realized, wow, these are followers of Jesus. I thought we, we killed that guy. I thought we got rid of that movement. Who do these guys think they are? They dismissed Peter and John. They commiserated, came up with a verdict and a decision. They decided we can't hurt them. We can't uh, keep them in prison. Can't kill them because they've got too many followers out there in, in the temple. So we'll just reprimand them, threaten them, scare them, and then we'll let them go and tell them they can't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. So they called John and Peter back in and, and said that very thing. Uh, you cannot preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And Peter said, should we obey God or man? You decide. But we must obey God. In other words, no, we're not going to shut up and we're not going to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And then it says, and then they threaten them all the more. And that's where we left off last time. So let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter 4. We're going to today look at 23 to verse 37 to see what happened after that. They decided they're going to let them out of prison, Peter and John. They've been there for 24 hours with the threat that you better not preach in the name of Jesus ever again. It's amazing how they can just manipulate the law and make ad hoc binding statutes according to a whim. Because preaching in the name of Jesus was not a violation of Mosaic law, which is what the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees were supposed to be living and abiding by. This isn't anywhere in the Bible. Just the contrary is true. They're preaching in the name of the Messiah. So they are lawless and really undermining God's True law. And so they dismissed Peter and John. And let's pick up the story and follow along as I read verses 23 to 37. When they had been released from prison by the Sanhedrin, Peter and John went on. Oh, they went to their own. They went to their own is what the text literally says. Their own are those who believe in it. It's their real family. The blood members of your family aren't necessarily your real family. If you're a Christian, your true family, your true brothers and sisters are those who believe in Jesus Christ, fellow Christians. That's your true family that is clear from the Bible and the New Testament. That's why it says they went to their own. Because Peter and John were Jewish. The Sanhedrin unbelievers were Jewish. But that wasn't what bound them together. Peter and John were temple worshipers. The Sanhedrin, they were temple worshipers, but that didn't bind them together. Peter and John believed in Yahweh of the Old Testament. Sanhedrin said they believed in the Yahweh of the Old Testament. That wasn't what bound them together. So what bound them together as true family was being adopted into the spiritual family of Almighty God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, belief in him and his work and his, uh, on the cross. That's what adopts a person into a true, literal, but spiritual family. And it is the deepest, greatest, most secure, blessed family that you will ever know. And it goes beyond blood. And so that's what it means Verse 23, they went to their own. They went to fellow believers. They went back to the 120 believers and uh, the others that got saved, the other 3,000 plus. And, uh, but wherever they went, maybe it was the upper room where they had been before. Maybe it was just uh, kind of the leaders because they couldn't accommodate all 20,000 believers at this time. Uh, so they did go to their own and they reported to all of them, all the believers, uh, all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, which was, uh, you are banned. There's a gag order. You can't talk about Jesus anymore. Can you believe we went to prison? Here's what happened. And they threatened us and said, we can't preach about Jesus anymore. Can you imagine what all the believers were thinking? That's, that's what we've been commissioned to do, especially the apostles. Jesus said, you have one job, preach about Jesus. 
That's what he prepared them for for three plus years. And now the one job they're called to do by God, they're told they can't do it. Verse 24, and when they had heard that the believers heard this from the leaders, uh, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, and so it's a prayer. They prayed together. This is corporate prayer. Here's their prayer, or at least part of it. Oh, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your father David, uh, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's devise futile things. Verse 26, the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Verse 27, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Take note of the Jewish leadership and their threats and grant that your bond servants or your servants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken like an earthquake, kind of like on the day of Pentecost. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They already had the spirit living in them. Indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Spirit indwelling is permanent. Being filled with the Spirit is not permanent. That's moment by moment as you walk in obedience to God where you have, you live in the fullness of the Spirit of God and you are controlled by the Spirit of God. And so they were filled with the Spirit of God and they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. And the congregation, verse 32, of those who believed were of one heart and one soul and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them, verse 33, and with great power, great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the cells and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each one as any had need. Now, Joseph, a Levite or a of the priestly line of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas or son of encouragement by the apostles. They gave him a nickname, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land. Well, Barnabas or Joseph, he sold his land and he brought the money from the land and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So in today's message, uh, I titled it... uh, because what they just went through is persecution, unprecedented persecution like never seen before. And so these are the fruits of persecution. So I, on your outline there, go ahead and look, and I came up with three points of uh, three fruits of persecution. We're going to look at the first ten verses I'll put there for you. And let's go ahead and look at the fruits of persecution. This is totally practical for us because we're no different than the early Christians. I've, I've quoted in this series... Philippians 129, you should probably memorize that one because it's for all of us. You're called not only to believe in him, Christian, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians 129, they say, Christians who do these kind of studies around the world, there are over 100 million Christians currently right now under severe persecution around the world, mostly from Islamic nations and communist nations. And I'm not talking about persecution that is just verbal or being ostracized. But 
literally bodily threat or your very life. 100 million Christians under persecution. That is the, that's our calling. It really is. And this passage uh, addresses that issue with the apostles as examples. So let's go ahead and look at the fruits of persecution. There are just three I want to highlight here. And the first one is spiritual worship. Spiritual worship, verses 23 to 30. Let's go ahead and look at it. Um, one unique thing about America and its history for 200-plus years is we haven't been subjected to severe, ongoing, hail, wholesale, universal persecution. Christians have not. We've had liberty, freedom, for the most part. And even times in our history where Christianity was looked upon very favorably. Uh, the Bible being used in the public schools. Can you imagine? Memorizing the Lord's Prayer in public schools. Those kind of things. And so that's been our heritage for the last 200 plus years. So in some ways, as a nation, we can't really relate to the kind of persecution going on in other places around the world today in its severity or even in the early church. But it's a reality. But one thing that happens with persecution, we know this from the Bible, we know this from practically see it in the world, is when there is persecution in a church among God's people, it's a, it creates a purifying effect. Because the, the phonies, they are not going to hang around for the persecution. I'm out of here. True Christians will stay. They will persevere. They will endure because their loyalties are to God and him alone. And so God will preserve them through persecution. So persecution is always a purifying thing, a refining thing. That's what we're going to find in the early church. Uh, but one thing that also does, we know, is when persecution comes, it intensifies to the deepest level our ability to worship God. We worship him in different ways when we're under persecution. And I think we worship God in very focused ways when we're under persecution at a deeper level. And our prayers change, and the nature of our worship changes, and our perspective changes when we are under severe persecution. We don't worry about the frivolous things of life. We become very focused. And that's what we're going to see right here. With the early disciples and the apostles, they're focused. They're not worrying about superficial, tangential, uh, ticky-tack things of life, petty things. The petty things of life just fall away under persecution. And so that's why one of the fruits is spiritual worship, the highest kind of worship when a Christian is subjected to persecution. And the kind of persecution that they just got subjected to was, yeah, it was threats, from the highest authorities in the land, but also death. They wanted to find a way to eradicate and kill Peter and John, but they just knew kind of with Jesus, well, we can't do that right now. That would be inconvenient. The crowd's too big. What would they think of us? But it's going to lead to that. It's going to come to that. Chapter 5 and following. So persecution is going to intensify, and this always for the corporate body and individual Christians uh, provides an atmosphere of just sweet, pure, unprecedented worship in the life of a Christian like never seen before. And that's what we're going to see here. These Christians are going to behave and react in such a way that they never had done before in their life. You're going to see uh, the apostles here in 23, as we go through it, to 30, worshiping God in a way, referring to Scripture in a way that they never did before in their life. As a matter of fact, many times, as Jesus is teaching the apostles for three years, he's quoting Old Testament Scripture, he's pointing them to Old Testament passages, he's trying to show them prophecies from the Old Testament, Mosaic Law, and they're just, they don't see it. They are not getting it. There's just a fog over their ability to understand truly the fullness of the Old Testament and its relation to a suffering Messiah. Now they see it 
crystal clear. As a matter of fact, they're quoting scriptures in their prayer. They're interpreting those scriptures accurately and properly and applying it to Jesus, the Messiah. Now we understand. And as they talk to God, they invoke scripture. They pray to God with his very word. That really is the height of true worship. When you talk to God, the Almighty, the creator that you know personally through Jesus Christ, and you speak to him with his word, his living word, his perfect word. So really the quality of their worship is just elevated in a way like never before. So let's just go ahead and look at some of the highlights of their worship. So starting at verse 23, when uh, John and Peter were let go out of prison, they went to their own, their fellow believers and Maybe in the upper room, as I said, and they reported to that group, whoever could fit in there about what the chief priests had said. Uh, we ha- are told we can't preach in Jesus' name anymore. Which struck at the heart of their religion. That's why they, ga- they gathered in the name of Jesus. They preached in the name of the Jesus. They did the uh, communion in the name of Jesus. They prayed now in the name of Jesus. They understand all the Old Testament rites and sacrifices in the name of Jesus. And they're trying, Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And now they're saying we can't invoke the name of Jesus anymore. So that was the report given to the Christians. Now, if this happened today in America, in many pockets of Christianity, the response to that would be, well, we need to go, we need to get a lawyer. And we need to take legal action, which sometimes there's nothing wrong with that. Or it might be the nature of their prayer. Uh, we need to pray, dear God. Uh, relieve us of all suffering and persecution uh, and give us no pain, dear Jesus, please. And God, help me move to Switzerland or another country where they're not, or Australia, there's a good one. We do pray those kind of prayers. We hear those kind of prayers. That is not how they pray. So let's go ahead and keep going and see what the nature of their prayer is and their fellowship. So verse 24, when they heard, when the believers heard this testimony, Immediately, they respond with prayer. That's, that's fantastic. That, that is model for us. We have a trial. We have confusion. We have persecution. We have um, a hardship. What should the Christian's first response be? Oh, let's see how I can solve this. Let's see how I can have my way. Oh, let's see if I can uh, manipulate the situation. It's prayer. I don't know what to do. Let's pray. Let's go to the Father. Let's talk to God. He is sovereign. He is in charge. He knows everything. He has all power. Let's go to the Father in prayer. That's what they do. And the way it's stated so matter-of-factly is amazing. There was absolute harmony and unity about what they should do. Let's go to God in prayer. Verse 24. And when they heard this, they it's like almost immediately, man, we need to pray. Let's pray. This is a spontaneous prayer. They lifted, they harmoniously, unanimously, together, a massive, large group. This is corporate prayer. With one voice and one heart, they lifted up their voices to God. With one accord, they were like-minded. They weren't disputing. And the way they address God is amazing. The New American Standard says, O Lord, but in the Greek text, it's one word. It's not two. Some translations say, Sovereign Lord. This says, O Lord. It's actually just one word. Despota, despota, despot, despotism. Refers to a king, one king, who is in charge, who is all authoritative, 
when in reference to God, and this comes right out of the Old Testament, God the despot, that refers to the sovereign God. The God is totally in charge of everything. They don't call him father. He is father, but he goes by many other names. And now they are going to the creator of the universe, the omniscient one, the omnipotent one. That is the despot. And they know him personally through Jesus Christ. So they go, oh, Lord, the absolute ruler, we need your help. We need to have the foundation that you are in charge of everything because we are about to be subjected to greater trial and persecution. They are in keeping with the way Jesus said to pray. Jesus said to his disciples, when you pray, pray this way. What's the first thing you're supposed to do when you pray is to invoke the name of God, invoke a personal name of God, invoke an accurate name of God that he's revealed in Scripture, and give him the glory. Hallowed be thy name. Give him the glory. That's how they pray. They invoke one of God's personal names. It has to do with the attribute that they need exercised on their behalf, the sovereign one who's totally in control of all things. And they give him glory. Hallowed be thy name. They begin quoting from scripture about how God is great and what he does. God, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. God, you control all things, even down to the last detail. Certainly you can control uh, the trials that we're being subjected to right now in our own personal lives. Because you are the creator. You're the sovereign one. That's what they're doing. And also they're referring to general revelation. How God reveals himself naturally to everyone throughout the world. And then they... Pray more scripture and they refer to special revelation in verse 25. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David. Uh, our, your servant said. And so they quote King David now. They're quoting from Old Testament scripture as they pray. So this is scriptural praying which pleases God. Which is in accordance with his will. And they quote from Psalm 2. And here's their prayer. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Again, they are praying Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm written a thousand years B.C. by King David. So you can read that on your own Psalm 2. And it is a prediction about the coming Messiah. That God the Father up in heaven would designate, anoint and recognize for the world who his Messiah is, who his anointed one is, and he calls him the Son, my beloved Son. That's Psalm 2. When Jesus got baptized, there was a voice that came out of heaven in front of John the Baptist where God the Father spoke from heaven and and quoted Psalm 2, calling Jesus his beloved Son. So this is the same Psalm that they are praying, and they are interpreting it, and they're interpreting it accurately. And if you read Psalm 2... It is a prophecy a thousand years before that God the Father would recognize his Messiah. His Messiah would be his very son. He would be anointed. He would be the leader of Israel. He would not be received by all. He would be rejected by many. And that is exactly what happened. And that's why they quote it. Uh, Verse 25 says, why did the Gentiles rage? So who was responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? Many of the Gentiles. That's the, the Roman soldiers were Gentiles. They were pagans and they actually hammered the nails in his hands. That's in verse 25. This comes from Psalm 2. A thousand years before Christ was crucified, God predicted the Messiah would be killed by Gentile pagans. That's the Roman soldiers. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples divine few, who are the peoples? They are in distinction of the Gentile. The peoples are the Jews. And that is exactly what happened. 
because at the trial of Jesus, the kangaroo mock trial of Jesus, where he was innocent, the Jewish mobs were shouting at the top of their lungs, crucify him, crucify him. Just five days after saying, Hosanna in the highest. Right there, the people's devised futile things. They rejected their Messiah, the Jewish crowds. Verse 26, then it gets, and the kings of the earth, who's that King Herod? It includes him, the kings of the earth. King Herod, he called himself the king. He was a king. He took a stand against Jesus. Verse 26, and the rulers were gathered. Who are the rulers? That's Pilate. He was the ruler. He was the ultimate authority representing Caesar. He rendered the verdict. He said six times, I see no fault in him. And in the end, he said, he is to be crucified. So it's very specific. And in case there's, and then they go on to actually interpret it, verse 27. For truly in this city in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, or your holy son Jesus, which is a word that comes right out of Psalm 2. Your holy son, your perfect son, your sinless son. He shouldn't have been on trial. He shouldn't have been crucified and found guilty. He was holy. He was sinless. Your holy son, Jesus, whom, Father, you anointed. You made Messiah. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one, the designated one. He was the Messiah. He was the Jewish Messiah. They should have embraced him. Herod should have embraced him. The Jewish people should have embraced him and coronate him. You anointed, but both Herod and Pontius Pilate. See, right there, he's identifying who he's talking about in Psalm 2. Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, like I said, the Romans and the pagans and everybody else that was not say, uh, a Jew that was involved, and the people of Israel. Who was responsible for the death of Christ? Everyone. They did it. They killed him. They crucified him. But amazingly, in verse 28... These evil, wicked people did to the Holy Lamb of God. They did to him whatever your hand, God. God's hand, that refers to his power, that he is in charge. They did to him. They crucified him in accordance with whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to accord. This is mind-boggling. These wicked people who hated Jesus did an evil act, and they crucified the sinless Son of God. But he was not worthy of death. But it was not an accident. Because in the big scheme of things, the big picture, from God's point of view, it was in accordance with God's perfect plan. That is amazing. Because those are the words right there in verse 28. They did exactly what you had purposed. And then it says, the New American Standard says, they did what was predestined to occur. Now, when we hear the word predestined in our English Bibles, we usually think of something that happened that was determined by God in eternity past. Predestined. I think the King James says determined. Predestined is actually a better word because predestined in the Greek is a compound word. It's horizo, horizo, horizon, horizon. That's where we get the word horizon. Horizo. What is a horizon? You look out uh, early in the day and the horizon is the sharp line of demarcation separating sky from land. Horizon. Horizon is a distinct line of marking something out to mark out that's what horizon means to mark out and that's the way it's used it's not used very often in the new testament it's a very rare word by the way when we think of predestination we think of election so you need to get that out of your mind predestination usually never refers to election election is a totally different word 
Election is usually an individual selection unto salvation. Whether it's a person or the nation of Israel, the elect or the angels who were elect and made holy. That's not the word for predestined. Predestined usually refers to acts uh, that God does and determines before the foundation of the world. And it's not always salvation. Rarely is it salvation. It's something else. It's his plan, his glorious plan where he marks it out. So and then it, so it's horizon, horizon with the precept, uh, preposition on the front pro beforehand before the world began back in eternity past. That's why predestined is a good word. I think the NIV says decided, but predestined is actually better representing the word here. Predestined, God decided beforehand, before creation and eternity passed, before there were people at all, God the Father decided and made up a plan. He marked out a plan of how he was going to use Jesus, how Jesus was going to come down, take on a body, live a perfect life, be the Messiah, die on a cross, die for sinners. And at the same time, human beings of their own volition would act according to their wicked nature and implement it and make it happen, the death of the Messiah. So it was God's plan It was determined, and yet human beings carried it out according to their own will and their own choices. They were not forced to do it, and they were 100% culpable for doing it. And God's already shown us it was a forgivable sin. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They did it in ignorance to a degree, whatever that ignorance was, and it's a forgivable sin. Sin, the death of the Messiah. And many people who are responsible for the death of Christ, shouting crucify him, did hear the gospel, were convicted, pierced to the heart, repented of their sin, and got saved. Including some of the Sanhedrin and some of the Jewish priests. One is in this chapter, at the end of the chapter. Predestined, determined beforehand. This is the exact same word used in chapter 2. Peter was preaching that sermon, verse 23, 223. He's preaching to all these men of Israel on Pentecost. And he says, uh, verse 23, this man, Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan. It was predestined. God marked it out in eternity past that Jesus would die being crucified. This was God's plan to accomplish salvation. And according to his foreknowledge, God knew about it ahead of time. He determined it ahead of time. Nevertheless, you nailed him to a cross. It was God's plan, yet you did it. It was God's plan, yet you're responsible. It was God's plan, yet you are culpable and guilty. And you need to repent. So this is amazing. This is one of the amazing, mind-boggling truths about Christianity is you have these doctrines that are true and they go parallel and side by side. And that is the complete sovereignty of God and the freedom or the volition of human beings. And it's just about in every Christian doctrine that we have. And you can't figure it out. It is a mystery. It's unresolvable in this life. And people, when they try to figure it out, they twist and manipulate Scripture. Oh, I fixed it. Here's how it works. No, that is not how it works. God is greater than we are. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His mind is above our, as far as the heavens are above us. So is God's thoughts, his minds, his way, his will far above ours. We are puny and pathetic. We ain't going to figure it out in this life. That's why God is awesome. I want mysteries like this in the, but these encourage me. God is amazing. I can't figure this out. God is awesome. That just calls me to a heart of worship and praise. God, you are You are the awesome, infinite, almighty God. There is no other like you. And your plan always works out perfectly. So this is how they're praying. They're praying scripture. They're praying corporately. They're praying unified. They're praying about Christ. 
uh, they're praying, trusting in God's sovereignty because they said to do whatever your hand determined to occur. We don't understand it, but we're going to rest in your uh, care, provision, and guidance on all things, God. Verse 29, and now Lord Kurios, Kurios, a different word for God. He is the Lord. He is the master. Again, he is in charge. Take, here's their one request about themselves. Take note of their threats. It doesn't say, deliver us from their threats. May we not get uh, beat up or persecuted anymore. Take note of their threats. God, you said you're in charge of all things, so we believe it. So uh, we ask you to be in charge of all things and, and watch. Take note of their threats, not deliver us. And so here is a more specific request. And grant, so they're, now they're asking for something. Here's what we do want. God, grant that your slaves, and that is the word slaves, grant that your slaves, that is the apostles first and other believers and the leaders. Allow your slaves to speak your word, so that would be any Christian, to preach the gospel with all confidence or all boldness. So the, the last word in verse 29 in the New American Standard says confidence, and the end of verse 31 says boldness. It's actually the exact same Greek word should be translated the same way it's it's boldness so what is their prayer request god don't deliver us from persecution but take note of the persecution we're going to be subjected to and while we're in the midst of the persecution uh, god give us boldness give us confidence and give us opportunities to preach the gospel and that's what he just did at the sanhedrin he uh, peter and john were able to preach the entire gospel one time with full session all 71 members of the most influential leaders of jerusalem all at one time just unprecedented god keep giving us more opportunities like that so that is their prayer very specific give us boldness verse 30 while you extend your hand to heal god keep doing those miracles because this how why did they go to jail they healed a guy in the name of jesus god don't stop doing that through peter and john don't stop doing that through the apostles god keep using the apostles to lay the foundation of the church and to establish the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. So keep healing. And that prayer is answered because as we go through the book of Acts, the apostles keep healing. Miracles were done at the hands of the apostles. Not every Christian was healing. Not every Christian has the ability to do that. The apostles did. So boldness, healing through the apostles. Uh, may speak your word with all confidence you extend your heel and signs and wonders which was done through the apostles that wasn't done through christians in general that was the apostles take place through your name there it is through the name of your holy servant jesus we're going to keep speaking we were told not to mention the name of jesus we are going to keep talking about jesus you go to target happy holidays no it's merry jesus christmas with a big smile with your big pin, Jesus is the reason for the season. I'm not going to shut my mouth for the blessed name of Christ. So that is one of the fruits of persecution is just this pure worship, individual and corporate. Let's go on to um, another byproduct of persecution is a bold witness. A bold witness. I said earlier that when persecution comes down on the church, the sissies... Uh, the pseudo-Christians, the phonies, whoosh, they scatter like cockroaches in the light. And the remnant remains. The true. That's the parable of the, the soils tells us, right? Four soils and four professing Christians. 
75% of them scatter. Many of them scatter because when persecution comes. Bold witness. So let's look at verse 31. So they pray. They pray corporately together. By the way, this was not a 20-second prayer. This probably went on for, who knows? This is a lot of people. They're praying. This is the essence. This is a summary of their prayer. That Luke got from somebody. Somebody told Luke about it, and this is how he summarized it. An eyewitness there from this prayer meeting told Luke, he wrote a summary down, could have gone for hours. That's how they prayed. Earlier in the book of Acts, it said, the early believers, they prayed daily. Prayed da- they didn't just go to church on Sunday for an hour and a half. Oh, it's 1230. I'm hungry for lunch. When's the sermon going to be over? That's the American way. I understand that. That is not how the early church did. They were praying daily, together daily, from house to house daily, praying, waiting on the Lord, fellowship together, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, praying, praying, at the temple praying, at their homes praying. Man, if the the church today could just do amazing things like the, the early church in the book of Acts, well, there's a huge difference. They prayed, we don't. And as I've been privileged to go to different countries around the world, I remember I went to Siberia for 16 days. They don't have a lot there. They were subjected to persecution for 70 years. Their faith is not showy. It's very deep. They have regular, long prayer meetings together. Well, what do you do there? We, We just pray for like how long? Oh, we don't put a time on it. Could go hours, could go days. What? How do you do that? What do you do? Well, we just pray. Same thing when I went to India with John Paul. They have prayer meetings that last for days. And, and marathon prayer time. It's just regular prayer and weekly. They don't have a lot. Same thing when I went to Ukraine. Just pray. They pray every Wednesday and every Sunday night. The church does. That I went to couple hours, three hours, prayer, praying, praying. These are people who have been subjected to persecution. These are people who don't have much in life. These are people who still are currently in governments that are not friendly to Christianity. They're committed to prayer, but anyway, uh, but they are also bold. So let's go on to point number two, and that's just bold witness, verse 31. So let's look at the answer to prayer. Oh, the point being, uh, by the way, we have corporate prayer night coming up in a couple of weeks, the fourth Sunday here at GBF be wonderful if people open up their homes or you went to one and you pray just for one hour and pleading with God. And persecution's coming, by the way. This is not a prophecy, a prediction. Top five ways to improve our prayer life here at GBF. I'll just give you one. The way things are going with the persecution, with the invasion of Islam and secularism and everything else, maybe 25 years from now, we will be living in a persecuted church here in America. All of our rights stripped away. Subjected to persecution like you've never seen in your life. I guarantee Christians will be dying, fleeing, sneaking to public prayer groups whenever they have the opportunity. It's not a prophecy. It's a prediction. You can see it all throughout history and in in countries today. But God answers prayer. He is faithful. He's a dear, loving, caring father. Verse 31, that's the answer. Verse 31 is the answer to their prayer. It was immediate. Sometimes prayers uh, are answered immediately. Isn't that cool when you get a, you pray for something? I pray for the salvation of this person. Like a week later they get saved and you don't believe it because they got, wait, really? I don't have to wait 32 years? They really got, really? God does that sometimes. It's awesome. Well, he did it here, verse 31. And when they had prayed, 
Immediately the place where they had gathered together was shaken. Now again, this is the apostles here. Okay, God, Jesus did promise the apostles some unique things that would never be replicated again by us. You've got to keep that in mind as you're reading this. This is not normative. Don't go home after this. If I just have enough faith and pray at my house, the whole house will shake. <laughs> well, it might, but it's not God working. It's an earthquake in California. There is a difference. But we can't have this expectation on all things that the apostles had. But So God shook the house literally. They were filled with the Spirit of God. That enabled them to answer their specific word. God, help us to speak the word of God boldly. And it says they began to or continue to speak the word of God with boldness. That's a direct answer. They are going to continue. All these Christians are going to continue to speak boldly. You know what's going to happen? Because the, the Jewish leadership is already mad and angry. And they're going to continue. We're not stopping. We're going to go out again. We're going to go out again. And we're going to preach again. We just got out of jail. We were told not. But we're going to preach in the name of Jesus boldly, powerfully. And they are going to be subjected to more and more persecution. Greater severity. But here's the answer prayer. They're doing it with boldness. And that's what we need. We're, we're kind of sissies. American Christian sissies. And we can pray this prayer. God, give us boldness. And one of the ways God might give you and me boldness, he might intensify the allowance of persecution. Because sometimes that's how he operates. It's his sovereign choice. Let's go on to verse 32 to 37, the conclusion of this story. Actually, this story doesn't really end in verse 37. It actually carries over into chapter 5, but we're just going to stop at verse 37. Because there is a unified theme. So the fruits of persecution are just a pure, deep worship. Fruits of persecution are just uh, an unprecedented, bold witness. And then a, a third fruit of persecution here is harmonious fellowship, this amazing unity. Or those of you who like alliteration, oneness. Worship, witness, oneness. You can spell it with a W if you'd like. But if you read it, verse 32 to 37, it is everything is about oneness. Oneness in how they get along, oneness in how they pray, oneness in their expectations, oneness in how they share with one another, oneness in how they perceive each other's needs. It is about oneness. It's amazing. So let's look at this amazing oneness, this purifying. So that's what God does under persecution. Gets rid of the naysayers, the critics, the phonies, so that all that is left is the pure in heart, the committed, the truly born again, who are humble, dependent upon God, and needing to be encouraged by fellow believers that's why there's harmony and oneness here they're recognizing the needs of their fellow man in a way that we typically don't that's what persecution does it brings out the best in a christian look at this harmony it's amazing and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and that's where it starts starts on the inside you can't be one on the outside until you're one on the inside did you know that here's the truth proximity does not guarantee unity well, let's just force them all together and they'll get along. No, they won't. With sinners, you force them all together, they'll fight. So unity starts in the heart. Oneness, the congregation of those who believe, they were of one heart. They were truly saved. They were born again. They were humbled. They were freshly saved. One heart, one soul. And they acted accordingly. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. They weren't selfish they cared about they loved the brethren that's a mark of true belief they were other oriented not consumed with self here's my thing and my problem and my agenda and let me tell you all about me that isn't how they were 
Not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was own, although it was their own. If you own something, it is yours. God allows that. That's called private property. That's why God gave us the Ten Commandments, and one of them is, you shall not steal. The presupposition is, you're stealing from somebody who rightfully owns that private property. So to own something personally is ordained and okay and protected by God himself. That's understood. But here, it is mine, yet I'm going to, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. They have a need, and I'm going to use what God gave me, and I'm going to let them uh, share it. And what is mine is theirs to meet their need. But all things were common property to them by their volition, by their choice. There was a growing rise in material, physical needs of the believers in Jerusalem because as they were getting saved and becoming Christians, they were being ostracized in the community by unbelieving Jews who basically were overseeing all the guilds and trades in that area. Oh, sorry, you're a Christian? You're out of here. Not only are you de-synagogued, you are fired and you can't work here anymore. Go find a job somewhere. This is like it is in India where we go with John Paul. Christians cannot find a job. And that's what's going on here. So there was material need that was immediate. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony, or the verb is witness. It's a legal term, and it refers to eyewitness. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So they continued to be bold. They didn't care about the threats to be jailed. And their focus was on Christ, the gospel. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And abundant grace was upon them. And God blessed them as a result. Didn't, that doesn't mean preserve them from persecution and suffering. But God's abundantly, as a result, as a matter of fact, when we are persecuted, God promises blessing when we endure persecution. But the blessing is not relief from persecution, usually. But abundant grace. The blessing could be the reassurance of your faith. The maturing of your faith, says James. The growing of your, the depth of your faith. So they're experiencing that blessing and grace from God. Verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them in the church of Jerusalem. So they had more than a benevolence fund. They were sharing their lives with each other, opening their doors. Mikasa is sukasa. Sukasa is mikasa. Not a needy person among them. For all who were, notice they're not relying on the government to meet their needs. As Christians, they're relying on God in the church. There's not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds. This is just sweet generosity and sacrificial love. This is not a mandate saying that all Christians need to go out. You can't own land. You can't own houses. You can't own cars. And if you do, you need to sell it and give it to the church. Now, that would probably make me nice and rich and wealthy, but that is not God's requirement. That's not what this passage is saying. It's not a mandate. It's of their own volition. It's how the Spirit prompted and moved their heart in that moment in time. And what did they do with their money, sacrificially? Well, it wasn't just willy-nilly. They had a system. There was organization. They followed a specific leadership. Jesus established very clearly, the leaders of the church will be a plurality of qualified elders. Peter said in 1 Peter 5 that he was an elder in the church. The apostles were the first elders in Jerusalem, and there was a plurality of them. And as we go through the book of Acts, the 12 apostles were elders at that church, and then they added other elders. They had a lot of elders. It was a massive megachurch. That was the leadership. 
And they were unified in how they made decisions. And they were unified in how they would collect the money, distribute the money, and identify the needs. They had a strategy. It was an ad hoc strategy that developed as they went, as the needs arose spontaneously, but they still had a basic strategy. People brought the money. What do we do with it? Give it to the government? No. Give it to what? No. They gave it to the leadership of the church. They laid it at the feet of the apostles. They would collect the money, and then they would decide what to do with it, and then they would delegate. They were committed to the word of ministry, uh, the ministry of the word and of prayer, and would not be distracted by other things. So they would delegate. That's why we need deacons and other leaders in the church who are gifted. And that's what they did. And so that's why, why do we have an offering? Well, because we're following a biblical model. The saints give to the church. It goes to the elders. We come up with a plan before Almighty God that we're accountable for. And we use other people who are gifted to distribute that money, to pay the bills, to keep the lights on, and the nice cool air that we have in this facility. And, and being aware of specific needs in our church. There are people in our church who don't have a job and they have hospital bills and car bills. And so we use some of that money and we allocate it accordingly. It comes right out of scripture. Practical needs, meeting the love, uh, or meeting the needs of saints out of love. Practical needs. Verse 36. And here's a specific example. Joseph, this guy named Joseph. He was a leader. He was a priest. He was probably an enemy of Christ, not long before. Because it was the priests, along with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and scribes, who hated Jesus and had him condemned. So here's a priest that God saved. He was called Barnabas. He, he established a reputation quickly because he was just a son of encouragement. He was always looking out for other people. Oh, there's Barnabas doing another good deed and helping out another Christian and uh, giving them money and giving them food and letting them stay at his house and letting him drive his camel or his whatever kind of car he had. So quickly, the apostles done it. Barnabas, man, this guy is exemplary. He is so exemplary, he becomes a main character throughout the rest of the book of Acts all the way up until Paul's ministry. Barnabas. He becomes a mentor of the apostle Paul. Barnabas. So we will see him again. He, Barnabas was amazing. Verse 37. Well, what did Barnabas do? Well, he owns land. He was wealthy. So you can be a Christian and be wealthy. Really? First Timothy 6 says that. He owned land. Uh, he sold the land. Brought the money. He, he sold it and brought 100% of the profit, apparently. Not just a portion. He didn't pocket some. Brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. I, I got uh, all this money from the land that I gave it to the apostles. Man, and he is being commended here by the Holy Spirit of God as an exemplary Christian. So you've got oneness and harmony all throughout here. Uh, literally sharing their lives. And that's, what, that's why I put fellowship. You know what fellowship means, koinonia? It means to share. And it means to share your life with someone else. That's koinonia. Beautiful word. Some churches are named koinonia. Music, Christian music groups named koinonia. And, uh, just a wonderful word. And the picture is sharing your life with other people. And that's what we need to do as Christians. And as persecution comes, it actually forces us to do that all the more, living in oneness with one another. I do want to close with um, just a quick observation because this is absolutely pertinent to us. I, I cannot believe how many... Uh, how pervasive, even in the Christian community, as I was studying and reading this passage, 32 to 37, and also in chapter 2 at the end, where Christians are saying that uh, communism is Christian and it's in the Bible. Communism or socialism 
living together, sharing things together, comes right out of the Bible. Jesus was a socialist. Jesus was a communist. And they go to, I'm not kidding, Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter, it used to be liberal theologians and pagans who would say that. And now there's plenty of Christians who say that and try to argue that from scripture. And so I was just, I was very discouraged as I was reading about it from a bunch of Christians this week. They're trying to find socialism and communism in the Bible. This is not socialism. We need to hear this. Nancy Pelosi, the former Speaker of the House, right here in our own backyard, who professes to be a Catholic and believes in everything against taught in the Bible, she invokes Jesus all the time. And she invoked Jesus in the Bible saying that socialism or communism is in the Bible and it's Christian. No, it's not. We had a candidate running for president, Bernie Sanders, who was a professed, avowed atheist and socialist who acted as a politician for decades as a socialist, the socialist party. And an atheist. He is opposed to all things Bible and Christian. Yet millions across the country supporting him, voting for him. Even people calling themselves Bible-believing Christians. So just to help us out here, to clear the fog a little bit, just a couple of, I want to close with a couple of contrasts between true biblical Christianity, as we see represented here, and socialism. Okay, real quick. And by socialism, it comes in many names. Marxism, as in Karl Marx, who was a devil. Communism. Nazism. These are all manifestations of socialism. And here are the ultimate presuppositions. Christianity says that sin is the main problem. Socialism, communism says that economic injustice is the main problem. Christianity says that God owns everything. Socialism says the state, the government, the secular government owns everything. Christianity is theistic. Socialism is atheistic. Christianity says there are private property rights are honored and protected. Socialism in its ultimate form says there are no private property. Nobody owns anything. The government dictates what you get to own or have. Christianity says all people are equal. Socialism doesn't say all people are equal. There's the upper echelon of the government who, and the leaders and the oligarchy who say what you can have. The Lilliputians down here. So there's always at least two classes of people. Uh, the Bible says individual decides what to give from his private property and who to give it to. So we decide with our, who we give to. With socialism, the state decides what you can keep. As Christian, Christians, we decide what we give as socialism decides what you can keep. Christianity giving is volunteer. Socialism giving is mandatory and forced with time by coercion. Christianity says that everyone is the same. We are all sinners before Almighty God dependent upon him. Socialism tries to force everyone to be the same externally through the government. Christianity promotes true liberty for the individual. Socialism in all of its forms promotes and breeds slavery. Christianity says there is rule by conscience. Socialism ultimately says it's rule by the sword. Christianity breeds prosperity. Socialism breeds slavery and poverty. Christianity has rule by justice. Socialism rules by fear. Just do a history lesson for the last 200 years and see all this. Christianity says in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, Ephesians, many other places, we are to live by the fruit of our labor. 
Socialism says you can live by the fruit of your neighbor. You should live by the fruit of your labor. No, you should live by the fruit of your neighbor. Huge difference. So I know that was quick, but because of the attack on the simplicity of Scripture that is so pervasive, we need to discern this. We need to be aware. And with that, let's go to God in prayer and be reminded of the value, the benefit, and our calling to persecution along with its blessed fruits. Father, we do thank you for our time together and the privilege we have to meet with fellow believers still in our country. God, we thank you for this gift of freedom that we have while we have it. God, remind us to be good stewards of it, to be thankful for it, to maximize it to our potential individually and corporately. Thank you for the testimony of Peter and John and the faithful apostles and disciples of the early church and preserving this true history for us so that we can learn from it and so that it can motivate us and also be the model of how we live. So God, help every believer here be reminded of these great truths that you are sovereign, you're totally in control. We're adopted in your family through the, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're secure in you. You answer prayer. You provide for our needs. You are in charge. You provide 100% stability. You give us a supernatural ability to not be anxious or uptight, especially through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through prayer, through the encouragement of saints. Help us endure persecution wherever we may find it. Thank you when it comes that it makes us stronger in you. And God, we just commit this day to you, asking that you be glorified in it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.